This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Episode 101, Rachel Attila. What a what a great um, BS session with her. I, I love talking to Rachel because she's okay. so – you just – ask her something and then just listen and she's so knowledgeable she's so well spoken and she's so easy to like she she can converse that that girl she's good at what she does yeah we tried to get this going a couple weeks ago but uh due to where she lives now way out in the bush the internet just up and died on her so she drove god i know i know roughly where she lives so she probably would have drove at least an hour each way on these icy snowy roads uh to get some signal for us and uh hung out with us for just over an hour that Easily could have turned into a three-hour conversation, but we'll have her back. Well, we had to cut it off, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that we still need to talk about, and uh, we just couldn't because obviously we're not we're not Rogan. You're not going to listen to Steve and I uh, drone on for three hours. Probably would have listened to Rachel for three hours, but anyway, um, we're going to have her back on the show. Um, we just kind of caught up with where she is, what she's doing these days, and. Uh, but she's got some really cool projects on the go, and we talk about grizzly bears, we talk about handguns and bands, um, and we're going to revisit that with Rachel again here in the new year. We're going to have her back on the show and talk about all these important things that she's working on behind the scenes that we should all be concerned about and be mm-hmm. thinking about. Yeah, it's uh, it, it falls right in line with Act Now, right? It it does. Uh, they they chip away, they chip away, they chip away, and we're we're seeing it constantly behind the scenes and uh health there there was an article was it a couple of weeks ago now by the time this comes out where they're they're trying to come after the the firearms the conservation officer service uses because they're too they're too deadly during the wolf call and stuff like that it's just uh do some googling <laughs> have have a look and see what the next fight is and just engage 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 we're going to be firing up the government engagement committee shortly uh to kind of kick again uh, the issues that are, are pressing and uh, yeah, we need your support for that. So yeah, you, you mentioned this, you know, the CO service. Um, so that, that, that was in on CBC yesterday. It was, it was, it is in the news cycle, but CBC printed that article yesterday and there was, uh, had 20 CO new COs uh, mm-hmm. posing for this picture and one of them had, a, they have a new rifle. It's a 308, but it's an on AR platform. And they're calling them assault rifles and that there's all this, you know. Um, they're too they're deadly. Just, they're law enforcement. It's they, a they law enforcement rifle. Yeah, they say they're too deadly for, for part of the issues. They're too deadly for the wolf call. I didn't know. I, I figured you'd want something that's quick, easy, accurate, humane, and to, to take care of that job as quick as possible. But I just, it's, it's an ugly, ugly battle we've been fighting for years and it's sadly only going to get worse and we, we need people to engage. We say it all the time. Uh, yeah. We hear it all the time from elected officials, right? If if uh, if re- resident hunters and concerned people got engaged and they heard from them regularly, we'd, we'd own the vote. But yeah. Anyway, here we go off on a rant. <laughs> yeah. So... Um... We just had the uh, BC Wild Sheep Summit in Prince George uh, this past week, November 16th, 18th. And um, that was basically, we got uh, people from all regions across British Columbia, government, First Nations, guide outfitters, um, individuals represented by uh, conservation organizations, Wild Sheep BC, BCWF, 
backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, we all got together and we talked about wild sheep. We looked at the issues facing the wild sheep resource and looked at ways to, to help each region individually. So great opportunity to get all the stakeholders at the table, have a discussion and come up with an action plan to support wild sheep and make sure that we have healthy, growing, robust populations in British Columbia. So great to see so many people enthusiastic and caring about wild sheep. And, uh, you know, roughly 100 people showed up to uh, to try and make a difference. And um, uh, just a, a great summit, great opportunity to talk about uh, the wild sheep resource. And uh, and hopefully we can just continue to, to support the wild sheep uh, in these regions and, and see healthy and viable populations in the future. Exactly. And that's what it's all about, right? A uh, bunch of like-minded individuals coming together and and brainstorming. Right and sharing ideas and bringing in new viewpoints and old viewpoints and coming coming together as one for the betterment of the resource and populations around the province. It was a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, let's go to episode one hundred and one. And uh, you're going to love this listen. Uh, always enjoyable to to chat with uh, Rachel Attila. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Rachel Attila, welcome to the show. Take two. (laughs) Hey, good things take time. So here we are. We tried to do this uh, last week and we had a uh, some technical issues and uh, the Wi-Fi crashed. But anyway, uh, finally connected. So thanks. And uh, you are uh, you got a great signal. You're looking good. You got your red scarf on. You got your woolly sweater. It's minus, minus 40 in the north right now. <laughs> we wouldn't be Canadian if we weren't, you know, a little bit bundled up and battling ice this time, hey? It couldn't be easy. Yeah. If it was easy, everyone yeah. would do it. Absolutely. So speaking of Canadian, you were Australian for a while, right? You went down south and you were you were aspiring actress in Australia. Is that correct? Is that uh, I no, I was in New Zealand. Um, oh, okay. I actually I was. I packed up my life back in 2009 um, and I was down there for a year and a half and I got to act in a few gigs, actually. Apparently had a callback from my uh, agent that I had a an opportunity to audition for The Hobbit when I was in the middle of the season at Scoop Lake um, because I could shoot a bow and ride a horse. Obviously, you don't have service, you know, in the mountains and kind of got back to my account and was like, oh, well, that would have been cool. But here we are. Yeah, cool. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's that's taken a bit of a uh, an S-curve in your career, right? So now, <laughs> instead of walking the red carpet in Hollywood, you're... Uh, you're you're riding a horse and chasing critters in the mountains so well see okay so that's a very fun part about it you know like every child grows up and they see these epic movies and montages and they're like man i just want to be that person getting to do all these epic things and go these epic places well the actors don't get to so you know i kind of got my little my foot in the door got to go and play around and the actors some of them get to do their own stunts and ride the horses but most of the time it's the stunt doubles that get to go and have the fun so I kind of came home and I was like, you know, I'm just going to be main character in my own life. Get to ride my horse around in the bogs and cuss myself every now and then when I want to stunt double. 
<laughs> so this is the the Rachel movie. This is this is much oh, more yeah. fun. You get to you get to direct it. You get to produce it. You get to do it all yourself. Uh, oh, hey, we're all the uh, masters cool. of our own movie. So cool. Okay, so I, I want to dig into a bunch of stuff here. So the the big thing for me is that you know there's it, I guess it's more common today to have ladies in the bush and doing all the good stuff like you know guiding outfitting and it does go back a long time but you know when you started guiding uh wrangling you did it at a very young age and you you know you were kind of a you know breaking ground I, i'm not saying you were the first but you were it was early times and now it's pretty common right you get a guide it's could easily you know it's not 50 50 but so yeah. talk about what what led you to that path and and like how the hell do you start out at 14 years old as a uh, wrangler <laughs> like I, uh, talk me through. Uh, sheer dumb luck, actually. Um, I had Crayola binoculars when we were kids growing up on the west side of Kelowna. And back when I think I was six weeks or nine weeks old when my mom had wet, met Darn and Wendy Carey at like a kids' women's meet and greet um, for new moms. So they're actually my godparents. And at 11, I was allowed to go north. Um, and then I, I think they tried to shake me, maybe. Um, but I came, I kept coming back like a dirty shirt. So um, that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. I really wanted a horse. My first job was shoveling manure in exchange for horse rides at what was Eight Mile Ranch um, back in Joe Rich as a kid. And from there, when I really got serious about wanting a horse, my parents were like, here, why don't you go north and play with all those outfitter horses? That's, that's a great idea. You can go for the summer. We don't have to feed it in the winter. Like, touche on their behalf. Um, and from one thing led to another, I had never really hunted or been around hunting at all. My dad used to hunt a bit with his buddies growing up, but, you know, as things change and, you know, um, uh, you know, a blended family will say everyone was busy, so we didn't, it wasn't really a part of our lifestyle back then. Um, and I kind of just started putting my hand up and it's like, I'd, I'd like to go trail horses and I'd like to go see what this stone sheep hunting is all about and kind of one thing leads to another and I remember as kids we had to prove ourselves you know that we we're we were able enough equestrians that we could saddle our own horse get bucked off get back on open and close the gates and then you know eventually start chasing the string um and I think you just you get to a point where you're like you know I, I really like this this is something it's challenging there were days good lord John DeVries I've burnt so many pancakes thinking in my you know, childhood head, I need to have a roaring fire to make pancakes. And the amount of pancake batter I went through that first summer, bless John DeVries' heart, because my God, did I burn some pancakes. The art of the rolling coal over an open fire was something that took me a little bit of time to master. But yeah. <laughs> um, they say charcoal's good for the diet though. So, you know, I was just helping him. But to be honest, after years of getting to wrangle and go and help and put my hand up, um, when I came back from New Zealand, when I was abroad, I kind of decided I wanted to be an outfitter, but start as a guide. And what does an outfitter need? They need money, they need clientele. So I figured if I was going to make a name for myself and build a clientele that was a no like, and trust, I'd have to start from the ground up. So I made neon orange hunting resumes. And on my last couple hundred dollars, flew myself down to Reno, Nevada, brought my bedroll, threw my bedroll out on um, Tiffany's floor, Don Wendy's daughter, and I ended up staying because there was a bunch of us crashing in that room. I mean, we're all broke 20-year-olds. And um, I started handing out hunting resumes. I didn't even think they were a thing, but I was like, well, if I'm going to get hired, I should show some level of professionalism. 
And I got more no's than I did yeses, but the people that said yes, you know, you know, we'll start, you can skin and tag along with some of the guides. And if you get it figured out, you know, then we'll let you loose. I didn't have a truck at this point. I didn't have a spotting scope to my name. Like I, when I'm talking like starting out from the very basics, I think I had a pair of hand-me-down binoculars and a good rain jacket. And that was it. And like a Dora the Explorer Cabela's style multi mossy backpack. No, no, none of these fancy straps. But, and from there, I ended up bumping into friends that I'd made when Jim Shockey's kids, uh, Branlin was in the Okanagan at the time selling furniture. And even I had met, um, at Rumbolians in 2009, I think, and we were the only two girls sitting at the bar and she had just come home from Australia and I was just going to New Zealand. So we kind of stayed in touch, old fashioned pen pal. One thing led to another. Jim was shaking my hand by the end of the trade show saying, how would you like to come learn how to run camera and be the rookie guide for what was then their new series, The Professionals? And the rest is history. So <laughs> uh, talk me a little bit through, you know, it's one thing to grow up like you want to go horseback, you know, ride a horse, right? Like, and, and I think, that, you know, you kind of alluded to that there and I've heard you say it before that that was kind of what got you into it. Like that your interest in horses, like, you know, you want mm-hmm. to ride and that sort of stuff, but that's a b- huge leap to like, you know, f- like full on, like guiding sheep hunters in the mountains and, <laughs> you know, high elevation stuff. And, um, so where is it, you talk, you just touched on it there. You talked about the adventure side of it. Is that what it was for you? Like you kind of, yeah. okay. Yeah. You, is it all about the experience and getting out in the wilderness or? It was because, you know, that's before now, this is where you start sounding old. That was before really social media was a thing, right? Everyone was doing it for their own personal mission. And, and yes, we still do it for that. And it's really cool to share on these different avenues. But back then it was adventure in the roughest form. You can read about it in magazines. You could see the pictures in the old publications. But I get I got paid to go camping and hang out with a horse string. And so teenage Rachel thought that there was like, that was a be all end all. And then after that, when we got to go and hunt the game, at first I was a little put off cause I didn't quite understand why people would come from all over the world to hunt this. But also my world was like the size of a pea at this point. It was a British Columbia pea, but it was the size of a pea. And so <laughs> that leads to more questions. And you ask, you're like, well, where did this person come from? And our first client, um, first sheep I was on was Susan. She owned her own restaurant in, I believe it was New York. And I remember sitting there in awe at this woman and she was telling me about all of her hunting conquests all over the world and, and the different organizations she went to. And I just, like if there was an emoji back then with the head blown off, I remember just sitting there swallowing it all up like a sponge. And so from there you ask more questions and then you get involved in things. And then as you grow older, those things that were originally sparked with wanting a horse and adventure it kind of all starts to tie together that there's so much more to the world as we each know it in our day-to-day lives. And it kind of brought me into this greater grandiose community that's worldwide that I think at the root of all of us, we want to be a part of a community. When you sit around a campfire, you share stories. So to me, the hunting industry became like that extended community with those people that I got to share in those adventures and learn about their way that they adventure. And to, so to me, that was... That was kind of the heartthrob of it all and the way I fell in love with it. Hmm. Very cool. So, and this started really, like, what, how old were you when you first did that f- first trip and went up to Scoop Lake? How, I, what age were you at? It was really young. Grades, I would just graduate, graduated grade six. So that would have been 99. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's really young. That was really young. And that was my grandparents drove me up to Tabor Lake outside Prince George. And I had never been to Prince George at that point. I remember my Uncle Darwin landing in the 185. It was my first time on like a small aircraft. And I remember looking at my papa at the time, like wide eyed and he was grinning ear to ear. And I was like, I don't know if I'm terrified, excited. I have no idea how big British Columbia is. And he's like, oh, it's another few hours flight up through the clouds. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, it was. So that first year that you went into camp, um, you know, you landed there, like it must have, like that was shocking to get on the airplane out of Tabor Lake, but to land in camp and be at this remote, you oh, know, yeah. um, that I can that still had to be- remember. Oh yeah. Those, those, you know, those times in your life where you just, you'll never forget. I can still remember when the clouds broke and we started and he started descending down and the spit at camp arrived and I could see the corrals and I could see the cabins. And I remember like looking up and down the trench and not seeing anything else. And then I just, I don't think I said anything until we landed. My eyes were just glued to the window and there was something in the back of my head that was like, I think you're going to like this. <laughs> I think you're going to like this a lot. So. So that first year you were in there, was it mostly helping out around like in, in the camp kitchen or was it like with the horses? What were you? Ooh, I don't know if I was much help. I think we were always trying to escape the kitchen. We had to do our chores. We earned our keep. Um, but, uh, help we tried, but, uh, you know, 10, 11 years old, you're kind of more apt to want to run away and pretend to make forts. And we did help with chores and we, we had certain tasks that we had to do, but you know, cause we were such kids, we were allowed to go and play and we would pester anyone in camp that would take us for a horseback ride. And there was an old gentleman, Ralph, who was from the Okanagan. And I remember we were chasing each other around as kids. And Ralph was this teacher. Um, he was a shop teacher, actually, from Rutland. And he grabbed this big old tree and he was riding around like a knight. And I just remember laughing myself, thinking that I'm going to fall off my horse. But he was charging around and, and he was showing us around and telling us these elaborate stories. And just as a child, like... I, in our head, we really were working hard, but I'm sure we were playing more than we were doing anything else. But a lot of those foundation moments of saddling your own horse and like learning the ins and outs of, even though these were old, you know, hunter horses that were the retired string staying at base camp to us, they were wild Mustangs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So from there you, uh, um, did you come back every year? Was that a one-off and then you eventually... Uh... Oh, no. They, I was, yeah, they were screwed. They were stuck with me. I came back my year after I left. Um, every May, I would start packing. School, of course, doesn't get out to the end of June. But every May, I would be packed by May 30th, just in case exams or you know year-end was done and wrapped up sooner. And I actually started taking a Greyhound north, back when Greyhound was around. My parents would put me on the bus from Kelowna, I would go Kelowna all the way through the Chilcotin, get off, do a changeover in Prince George. This is like a young teenager. From Prince George, go all the way up to Dawson, do a bus change there, then get on the bus in Dawson Creek, all the way up to Fort Nelson, from Fort Nelson, all the way up the Alaska Highway, and get kicked off at the Bighorn Hotel in Watson Lake. It's 20, it was 36 hours on a bus. That that in itself is an experience. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, yeah. <thanks. laughs> oh yeah. No thanks. Yeah. I you know, you live through it and it definitely taught me about reading people, especially the characters that would get on the bus in the wee hours in the morning. Um, but yeah, every single year I didn't miss a year until the year I went to New Zealand. 
So I'd, we do the math. That was 99 until 2009, I think, was the first year I missed. Wow. So, so you you had that first experience with Jim, got, went in and um, you know, Camp Cook, helped out with guiding, got started. Um, yep. Was it then you're like, no, I, I want to do this for a living? Um, you know, because you really were experiencing, like, obviously, you, you liked the lifestyle, but now you're actually doing the work. Um, was that you know, kind of a come to Jesus moment for you or, or how did that work? Uh, to be honest, I, I knew I really wanted to guide. I didn't want to be stuck at camp. Um, I really wanted to get out and learn the trails. Like the pivotal moment was kind of when I got hired by Jim where it's like, you learn how to make this into a career, but there's no how to book. It's not like, Oh, go to college, get the degree. Here you go. Now you can be in the outdoor industry. It's like, it's kind of an open slate. So I remember sitting with Jim after at bear camp and I actually, I drove his truck. So like no pressure or nothing driving Jim's brand new truck from the top of the Island down to their place in Duncan. And it was kind of like an extended interview and he can be a very, he's a very nice guy, but a very intimidating persona when it's just you and him in a vehicle and you're driving his vehicle. And it's like in the back of your mind, like, don't screw this up. Don't crash this thing. Don't, don't, don't do anything bad <laughs> for God's sakes, go the speed limit. Um, but at that moment when he kind of said, well, if you're going to make this into a career, and I remember him telling Eve and I, it takes three years for people to know and remember your name in anything. And Jim sat us down and he's like, you know, because that was the next year Eva and I decided she was going to go and do a t-shirt sale. So I was going to travel with her, do some photography. I think we did like eight to 13 trade shows. It's all jumbled together that next spring traveling around I rented a car had some boxes of shirts flew to different places with her we survived Harrisburg PA but I think in it wouldn't be one pivotal moment but I remember it was that fall of sitting there trying to figure out okay well how how can I pay my bills if this is going to be something I dive into yes you have to be able to pursue your dreams and that's one thing my parents have always said pursue your dreams but don't become a burden on society if you're going to chase something go all in but make sure you've got somewhat of a business plan and my rough business plan has never deviated it's always been if you're going to make a name for yourself as a guide be a good guide and if you're going to be a good guide work for the good outfitters but work for a bunch of them don't just work for one or two places Um, and that's kind of the hardest part because you'd get settled in on a place and you'd really love the way it is but, you know, after five or six years, it's like, okay, well, I had a game plan. In in 10 years, I wanted to work the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, and British Columbia. And I wanted to work for the areas that has some of the best reputation for stock, for the guides that always want to come back. They were always kind of hard to get into. So, like, even at Harold's, I got in by signing up as a trail cook. Because um, he didn't have a guiding position at the time, but they needed a trail cook. And I said I could probably saddle a horse and figure that one out. And uh, by the end of the season, Harold let me take a few caribou hunters just because I proved that I wanted to be there and ride for the brand. And the next year, I got totally thrown into a different realm and taken away from the horse string and went backpacking. And let me tell you, I'll never forget, there's a gentleman named Trevor Shoelist, and I got to go as his helper on the first backpack hunt. And that winter, he sent me an email said, Rachel, ounces make pounds. I want to see toothpaste in a Ziploc bag. Cut your toothbrush down so it's only an inch and a half with enough to hold with your two fingers. Cut all your weight down. Well, what did I do? I brought way too much stuff. I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything out loud, but I definitely remember getting back to camp after that first hunt going, well, that was dumb. I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need this. 
I definitely didn't need that. But it was kind of a cool opportunity to like see the other side because I'd always been on horse crew. So. so you've had that experience now. You've, you've guided to these th- three different areas. Mm-hmm. You've done the backpack. You've done horses. You've done moose. You've, done, you've, you've kind of done it all, really. Um, if you distilled it down, what, you know, what stands out? What's, and I, I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite, but you're going to say, I know what you're going to say, but what, what's your favorite? <laughs> Definitely the sheep hunting. Um, yeah. That's the part that I didn't anticipate. I thought it would be super easy where you'd just be like, oh yeah, no, screw the Yukon. I'm staying in BC or you know what? BC sucked. I, I don't like it here. There's too many residents. I'm going to the NWT because if you see someone, you're probably high-fiving them and asking if they're lost. Because you just don't have the same pressure. Um, what I found was I, I appreciated each for what it was. And so you fall in love with each place because of its differences. So, you know, the NWT, it was like being in a game park because you're not hunting against anyone else. You know, the game is usually very, very good. Um, and it makes you look like a rock star with how much game there is. You still got to hunt hard. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's not a walk in the park by any stretch of the imagination you know in bc you know you got good you know good sheep if you know where to go and you got to hunt hard you got to be crafty and you got to cover your tracks and for god's sakes don't take a skyline photo because your outfitter is either going to fire you and every resident on a talk show is going to know where you're at and the yukon not as much hunting pressure but definitely gets a little bit more winter depending on where you're at and they produce some great animals as well and it's, you know, part of the Klondike history. And so there's a lot of cool Canadian history in it and good game with kind of the happy medium of resident pressure, if you would, between BC and the NWT. So it it kind of set me up for, okay, I, I can go to any one of these places because I know, you know, if, if the start of the line, I have a little bit of a background in each that will hopefully help me as I move forward. So now you talked about these different places you wanted to be with, with mm-hmm. the best outfitters, but you also wanted to do different experiences. Was that just because you wanted different experiences in life or was it to build a resume? What was the sort of motivation for wanting to, to move around? Because there's guys that spend, guys and gals spend their whole career with an outfitter, obviously. So yeah, I, th- I like to think of the boy on the farm analogy. If you grow up in a family of ranchers, you only know one way and it might not be a bad way. But there's new technology, there's new advancements. So, you know, you, you encourage, you know, your kids to go off and, and learn a different technique. And they might learn something they really like or they might realize, you know, hey, we actually do this a really good way. So that was kind of the idea I wanted to have, not only between chasing the different species um, that came with each province and territory, but it was learning what I really liked about what some outfitters did, whether it came down to how they handled their horse stock, how they wanted to be able to... You know, with their crew, did they have enough crew? Were you crew hungry? Did you have, like, how were the kitchens run? Like, Because that's one thing you always hear when you go to these trade shows is we can't control anything about the animals. They're either going to be there or they're not. You can be in the most target-rich environment and they're not there. But you can control your attitude, a good, str- a good string, which is like horses and your crew, and good food. And... All the outfits that I've worked for, you know, it really stood out to me, like especially, you know, at Scoop and some of the other places. But Harold Grindy's area up at Ghana, you know, the girls were always crazy busy in the kitchen. Um, They were making sure there was lots of goodies. The hunters love 
I, I mean, who doesn't love baked goodies? It doesn't come in a package. It's that old school experience of, you know, here's a ba baked bread. And I'll tell you what, Harold Grundy knows how to make some really good bread. And he, I remember the first year there, he was in the kitchen, you know, baking and cooking. And he looks like a cowboy out of a Louis L'Amour book. And so I was blown away. So, you know, when you look at stereotypes, it was kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. I really respect that. And then I burnt my first loaf of bread on the barbecue this winter because, or this summer, because I had been nine years since I baked bread. But everyone's <laughs> made it out. I haven't killed anyone. No one's calling me saying that they've got gut rot. But I've never, like this year, I was never a base camp cook. I had never spent so much time in a kitchen. And I did it. So was it? So was that why you ordered pizza? Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we saw that post. You saw that post. Okay, good. Well, I I learned how to make pizza, and uh, my boyfriend's like, I, I'm going to need you to guide on the roster. We had two back-to-back -back hunts, but we didn't have a base camp cook. Um, so in my head, I was like, Oh, no problem. I got a week to prepare. Well, a week to prepare for the rest of the month meant I baked 70 loaves of bread. 1,131 cookies. I counted them all because I didn't even believe it myself. I made nine different loaves because we had three, two hunt changes. So I did all the baking and I think I got like tendonitis in my wrists from doing so much baking and like my feet were sore. And by the time my Wrangler and I had our boxes packed and as soon as that hunt change day came, I was down the trail. I was like, I'm out. I need some time. <laughs> but we did it. That's cool. So um, we're going to jump into what you're doing this this past year, but you talked about you know different experiences, different locations. Um, mm -hmm. When you think back of all you've done, all these places you've been, all the all the different experiences, what what comes to mind? Do you think of the people? Do you think about the animals? Do you think about the environment? What 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 really stands out? What's your motivation? Is it like obviously it's multifaceted, but what really is poignant for you when you think back on it? Oh, that's a tough one. Good question. I would honestly have to say all of those things are pivotal. But to me, it was the clientele, how they came out. And the areas like that I worked for, like, you know, at, at Harold's Camp. And I would have to say it's the way that the clients come out of there with the experience. You know, like if there's one thing that stands out with all the places... I I would have to say it's how the clients come out of camp. You know, do they have a good experience? Because like, we can do our job and absolutely love it, but at the end of the day, we're in customer service. So each of those places, in a very special way, without naming names or forgetting anyone, to me, it's, it's how did the client perceive the experience? Because I know how I perceive it. It can be a hellish day on the side of a mountain, freezing our butts off in a snowbank, and I'm having a great day. But if my client is miserable, then... I better, you know, pack our stuff up and let's go back to the cabin. But to me, to me, that's your signature. It doesn't matter how good the game is, how good you think your horse string is. It's how the clients and the hunters who become friends talk about you and the experience you gave them. It doesn't matter if you're in the Yukon, the Northwest Territories or BC, but that would be my favorite part about it. I love going to the shows. I love seeing the clients talk about their experience and relive it. And I mean, after a few drinks at the circle bar, we all get a little excited and I'm sure there's hands thrown around, but to me, that's the biggest gift you can give someone 
you know, when they get to relive an experience, no matter how truthful or not it might have been, or how big or small the bear was that came in, or how big or bad the pack wreck was when your horse went down in a bog, but of all those different places, the people that came back with the best experiences were were kind of a reflection of how good the outfit was that, that curtailed to them, or helped them achieve what they wanted to. If that answers your question in a very open manner political are you running for office now public office or what that was Ooh, very political, uh, very political. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go there in a minute we're going to talk about what's <laughs> what's going on for rachel in the future but okay so uh interesting you brought up you know you're in the customer uh customer service business uh or you mentioned like customer service so you know when you think of guides and outfitting you especially guides you don't necessarily think about but i've heard and of course i haven't guided before but i've heard people talk about you know yeah you're you know it's customer service you're providing an experience for somebody and it's all about providing for the customer i always think Mm -hmm. it's like technical right there's an animal you got to find the animal you got to but no Mm -hmm. it's about custom customer experience the customer experience eh? Mm -hmm. 100 percent. and and that's what you know as a young guy it doesn't matter if you're male female you want, you want your hunter to be successful. You want to be successful because I think, I know I would take it personal. The first time I sent someone home without an animal, it was not for lack of trying. And I remember beating myself up and I couldn't make a sheep appear to save my soul. I was everywhere. We were up early. We were to bed late. We were in hidey holes, highs, lows. But at the end of the day, my hunter came up to me and he said, you know, I had the most fantastic time. You know, it was fun. We had fun. We looked at game, we saw game, we just didn't have any luck. And sometimes it's not luck. Or sometimes we just need luck on our side. And I, I remember not knowing if he was just trying to let me down nicely. But at the end of the day, he said, you know, I, I've been dreaming about an experience. I'll come back another time. But I got to have it. And then as it turns out, he got to go and stay a few extra days when I went on to my next hunt change. But to me giving someone that experience is probably the greatest gift i mean they have the trophy it hangs on their wall but they don't bring the trophy around whenever that someone asks them well how was your trip here right it's it's all what lives inside and what they remember so that's one thing we try and stress it is there i remember my auntie wendy said it perfectly and not to be crass but she's like you know they're paying your wages you are here because they would like and they would like to be here if no one was paying our wages as much as we'd love to be in the mountains, I mean, how many of us could afford to fly in and be gone for three months just to go hang out, right? It's it's still, you can have a tycoon from 5th Street, Saks Fifth Avenue, however you want to say it. Clearly, I'm cultured here at this point. But <laughs> the part that's really cool to me is that you can take someone who, in their own world, is very skilled, very astute, very, you know out of their realm when you put them in the mountains on a horse which was the way that the west was settled and give them something that is 300 500 600 millennia old because this is the original transportation yeah we might be wearing some pretty cool new gear nowadays that help us stay out there longer but i still will sit in a snowbank and i'm like man could you imagine wearing leather boots without you know insulate right now and not having a down jacket that would suck (laughs) And, you know, you kind of make conversation like that and, you know, if a guy's having a down day and you kind of reflect on how advances in technology have made us out here so that we're more comfortable. And it's kind of neat to see people go from 
as a casual thing, checking their phone all the time to sitting there and just looking around and enjoying nature. And I think that's, that's the coolest part. You get the people that enjoy it and you get the people that feel very uncomfortable about it. But at the end of the day, the first kind of outweigh the last. And that's what kind of keeps it alive for a lot of us, I think. Cool. I kind of want to ask you what your worst experience on the mountain is, but it's tough, right? Because if you've got a client that listens to this, it's, uh, I, I guess we can't even really, because I'm sure you've had, you know, I, the odd, odd experience Ooh. that wasn't this. Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot. If you want to talk about it, great. But it was, it was burning bread. It was burning bread. Bur- uh, yeah. Burning. No. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Professionally, there's, there's conversations we won't have, but sometimes, going in prepared for everything and expecting the unexpected you just never know as miranda lambert said there's all kinds of kinds and they make the world go round and my god do you see some of them so we'll leave it at that <laughs> cool okay let's talk a little bit about um you know you, you know you as a role model uh in particular as a female role model obviously a re- role model for both genders but you know you've really created a name. And when people think of the guide outfitting industry, uh, certainly your name's coming up for sure. Um, talk about, you know, how that's played into it and how important that's been. And, you know, does it change the way, you know, how active, I guess, are you in the mentorship process with, with young people? Just talk a little bit about, you know, your influence on that sort of next generation that's looking up to you for guidance. Oh boy. Uh, I, I'm very humbled by that. I don't, I don't know. It's, you don't set out to be something, if that makes sense. I, I never set out to be anything. I was always told, work hard, keep your head down, actions speak louder than words. And by a product of that, um, it comes with an awesome responsibility that I'm, it still doesn't quite... I, I don't know. It's it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation because I don't think I've done any more than other people. And I think there's a lot of very accomplished hunters out there, male and female. Um, I think that what it does come down to is being authentic and not being afraid to show the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, I think that the last couple of years have been kind of a roller coaster of up and down of trying to take on opportunities and, and a few risks that have kind of blown up in my face. But at the same time, I, you just have to keep showing up. It doesn't matter who you are, or what your goals are. You're going to get so many no's before you finally say, yes, why don't you come on over? Why don't you take on this role? Why don't you come wrangling or start guiding? That's what you want to do. And I think I'd, I haven't been as present on social media the last two years as a lot of other people um, because I'm trying to figure out that dialogue, to be honest. It makes me not uncomfortable because I really enjoy helping people, but there's a way of being proud of your story and owning your story without coming across as arrogant. And I just, I never, I never wanted to be the latter. And having that self-confidence has kind of been the last two years of journey of, of building up that confidence again in yourself to be able to talk about who you are, what your path has been, in hopes that it helps someone else. And the, the few guides that I've, um, 
I've just met recently some of the younger female guides that are just starting. We were actually at a Halloween party and there's a young gal named Sierra. She's guiding for an outfitter up in the northwest part of BC. And it was so cool to get to sit there and visit with her, you know, and just kind of swap stories about what it's like when you're, you know, you show up at the dock and the hunter gets off and they kind of look you up and down like, okay, so you're the trail cook, but where's the guide? And I think the really cool part about social media nowadays is that you can kind of share those stories in a light that you're not coming off as... I don't, I don't even know the word because I don't want to miss... I don't want to misrepresent what I'm trying to say, but it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Everyone's going to have a hard time. I remember talking um, with some of the outfitters I worked for and, you know... 10 years ago they would ask are you okay with going with a female guide and nine times out of ten the guys that said you know what I'm gonna have a real problem with that were kind of a pain in the butt for the guys that they ended up going with so it just comes down to a personality thing but as far as moving forward um, I think we're trying to do more wild sheep's doing some great things for the young people Um, it's got a very good young vibe going for a lot of the wranglers and guides I know everyone looks forward to shows like that where you can kind of network and and swap in stories and and share tips that people have learned you know from their own experiences I think COVID kind of it brought the community a little tighter there's been a lot of guides that have moved on and there's been a lot of new fresh faces step up um so as far as mentorship, I think it comes down to community ship, if I'm going to make up a word here, um, and being able to kind of stay in touch with those people on social media and not be afraid to put your neck on line and be like, hey, great job, like awesome caribou with your client to, you know, a new young guide and, and sharing in each other's victories and stories. Um, I think I think that's a big thing that people are afraid to put their neck out there or they're afraid to step forward because they don't want to overstep a boundary. I don't know. It, it's kind of a touchy one because I don't, I think people want to encourage each other. Um, and I know I sure do, but when it comes down to mentorship, mentorship looks like different avenues for different people. If that makes sense. Some people want to know more about guns. I know I took up bow hunting just because I got given an archery hunter and I didn't know the first thing about a new compound bow. So I, that winter I dove into it and, and not being afraid to ask those questions. Um, do I want to do more of it? Yes, now that I'm settled and kind of figuring out life and, and how can we help, you know, this next generation. Um, I think that would be something that's more open and on the table as people kind of dive into the new avenues they want to explore. Okay, cool. So now you, like, you've got all these, you've got a really strong brand following, like, you know, you're in Yeti Ambassador and the list is, is lengthy. Um, is that an important part of telling the story and having the outreach through Yeti and um, and the different brands, obviously beyond that? But uh, is how important is that um, in telling your story and sharing your message and and uh, and 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 is that an important part of what you do? Is is having the you know being a brand ambassador for these different brands? Yes, um, it is important in the sense that I've never approached a company. To work with them and I think that's the part that I'm very honored and humbled about is that I've turned down companies because if I don't believe in something I can't stand up and openly say yes buy this cooler because I think it's going to make your life that much better you know I I buy into 
how Yeti lets people tell their stories. And, you know, if you look at any of the great examples in um, the marketing that people are doing nowadays, people want to hear a story. They want to see real life people doing real life things. And if those products help their life, whether it's staying in the field as a guide, you know, it, it definitely, it, it's kind of a pinch me moment when you walk through a store and you get to see a product and you're like, oh, you know, I, I got to help give a couple feedbacks on that. You know, or you see a photo in a, you know, a magazine or something. But the biggest thing has been making sure the t- story is getting told the right way. Um, I remember back in, I think it was two, oof, seven years ago, I think, um, Yeti came on to Wild Sheep Foundation. There were a few of us that kind of put that organization and other hunting organizations on their radar. Because at first, that it wasn't really something that they had ever dived into. And now it is really cool to be a part of those companies for myself to see how they're helping and how they're giving back. So as much as being a brand ambassador is kind of like a badge of honor, it comes with a responsibility of making sure that I'm not just a yes man. And I've never been a yes man. And that's gotten me out of a few jobs because I, I won't sugarcoat things and I don't necessarily tell people what they want to hear because if I don't believe in it, I'm probably going to be pretty vocal about it. Um, Because at the end of the day, if your brand is built on lies, whether it's personal or commercial, you don't have longevity. So having companies that I've been able to kind of vet through that believe in the story, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that people people see what they want to see and when you have companies that believe in you and what your mission is and standing up for conservation being a grassroots you know I, I'm not someone that has a tv show I'm not someone that ever aspired to have a tv show I got to have a taste of it and then I ran away from it the other direction because to me that's not what was important what's important is the industry and with that you know, as, as the career has kind of developed, I haven't had time to really sit down and dive into, okay, how are we going to make, you know, Yeti more aware of, you know, the young guides up and coming? Like, those are all stories that kind of naturally progress as you work with a company. It's like building a relationship um, and having that trust between each other. So it's, they're always evolving. Um, it means a lot. i I think that when you have, just because you have um, the opportunity to work with those companies doesn't necessarily make you a better guide or not. Um, But it definitely helps tell the story. And I think as long as it's telling the story, then we're accomplishing something and we're helping the animals, the the industry, and the overall community. Yeah. Speaking of stories, I want to hear one of your favorites from a from a day hunting or guiding or whatever you got to have something cool uh, that sticks with you i in 2015 i was supposed to hunt the uh an archduke and he couldn't make it for that particular hunt um because he was at the royal wedding so in 2016 he came back and this gentleman got off the plane with his son and he wasn't very sure um they actually sent another guide with me for the outfit i was working for at the time because he wasn't very sure, you know, if he really wanted to have a female guide, you know, staunch Catholic family and an accomplished hunter. And it was a very cool experience because each day, you know, not over talking, not overshadowing, 
but just getting to be there in the presence of someone who's hunted internationally with a Matthews Mission Craze bow. He's like, the bow works for me. It works for my shoulder. You know, he would train. He shot an elephant with that bow. He obviously had to train for months, years ago. So that way his actual overall arrow length was lethal. Um, but I remember growing in appreciation. It, it felt mutual. And then um, we've actually since stayed in touch um, over the years. But getting to appreciate someone from, some, from a standpoint from an old European culture and for him to have come over and to have gone hunting together... It was a very unique relationship. They, it, in a storyline, it was almost like we grew for respect of each other. Um, and we were able... He was due for an ankle surgery three weeks after going home. And we were archery hunting sheep and caribou. We were able to kill two beautiful caribou um, for his son and then for him. And we archery hunted sheep. We went up the same mountain, did the same stock, trying to make it happen. And I think it was like on the seventh day of the twelfth hunt... He kind of said, you know, I, I, it's been a very long time since I've harvested anything without my bow. But he said, my pride and my ankle will no longer let me do this. And we were able to harvest a beautiful old ram. We still got into 100 yards on this thing, just so it was still as much of an archery hunt as we could. And I remember at the end of it, even to the very last day of his hunt, he said, you know, Rachel, we... We can't shoot this from our bed. We should still go try. I still have tags for a wolf, you know. But at the end of each day, at the end of each day, whether I rode him through a rainstorm, through the willows, through muck and mire, his horse trying to go down the river, at the end of the day, he came to me and he took my hand and he said, today was a wonderful day. Today was a beautiful day. And I just, his admiration for being there, I was like, my God, I almost, my horse, the horse almost tried to kill you today, but you're happy. I'm Okay. But it was just the guy, his charisma and zest for life, it was infectious. And, you know, I'd, I learned how to lace up my boots differently, you know. But it's still, I talk about that hunt almost, whew, almost every hunt I have. You know, something will come up about who have you hunted with in the past, you know, when hunters ask you. And I don't necessarily say it was the Archduke, but... I tell him about someone who had the absolute zest and passion for life that at the end of each day, no matter how miserable it was, they went to bed happy and they woke up with the, like an exuberant amount of energy for the next day because today, that day was going to be a good day. So metaphorically, like I wish to be more like that and I strive to be more like that because that person was so wonderful to be around no matter what was thrown at them that it just makes everything that much more worthwhile. Awesome. Um, cool. So let's talk a little bit about where you're at uh, now. So let's talk a little bit about this season. I know on our last trial run on the podcast here, before we lost our Wi-Fi, we started talking about what you did this past season. Now, you, you, I'll preface it by saying that you talked about, you know, you talked about having your own concession and doing your own thing. So is that still on the horizon? What What's in the future for Rachel Attila? We just talked about politics. I was joking a little bit, but um, <laughs> clearly you didn't laugh too loud. So there's a story there. So I want to hear what's on the on the future for uh, Rachel. Uh, well, uh, the start of this year, um, 
I, for a good friend, I was going to be running uh, one of their concessions, actually totally out of my comfort zone in Saskatchewan. And as we kind of did the marketing season, trying to roll over hunters from three years, uh, the gentleman who owned the area just kind of said, hey, we just can't make this work. Um, and so going into, uh, I guess it would be like March, April, I actually had nothing on the books. And I was going to go just hunt for myself. I was going to go be a BC resident um, and I was going to get kind of a little bit more focused on kind of future forward things if I was going to go and help at an area. Um, and my boyfriend at the time, he, we're still now, he was going to be running an area up in the Yukon. And I kind of said, well, I'm going to go run my area. You run your area and, you know, we'll visit. I might, I'll come up for a couple of weeks, but this is your deal and this is my deal. And, you know, it's a new relationship. And they always say, if you go to the mountains, you're either coming out together or you're not. So, <laughs> Um, as the season kind of progressed, he asked me to come and help out with a hunt or two, which I was more than excited to. And as the season started going, um, through calving and into branding season, he kind of was like, oh, how do you feel about being a base camp cook? I was like, what? <laughs> um, but, uh, I said, of course I, you know, I'm up to try anything. And so we dove right in. He's running an area in the Yukon. And I went from being a guide to, you know, guiding a hunt at the time and agreeing to be a base camp cook. And I'll tell you what, I've never reached out to more cooks in my life being like, dear God, Rachel, do not screw this up. Because um, <laughs> I've never, I mean, I've helped bake meals for Dixie Hammett when they had Sick and River Outfitters, but base camp cook was never something I had on the resume. Um, so I dove in and we went to the Yukon. I got to help shoe the horses and get them on the road and do all the parts of, you know, traveling north. And um, the biggest challenge that I sat down and had a whole bottle of wine over, there's a lot of responsibility when it comes to ordering groceries, gentlemen. And neither of us had ever ordered groceries for an entire season going to the north and our last Costco being in Prince George or in Grand Prairie. So um, we, I, I, without, we had like, there was no foreknowledge. There was no previous information that had been passed down. And I literally sat there a glass and a half in and I pulled out all my old guide outfitter cookbooks. And I was like, well, let's start from the bottom. If I know I have these ingredients, these are, you know, I'll go through a bunch of the staunch recipes that I remember that are good hearty meals um, for making bread and everything else. And I'll start with a grocery list that way on ingredients. And we took my living quarters horse trailer to Prince George and we loaded up the entire back of it. I had uh, this book I called the God book because I literally had folders of recipes and I had made lists. I'm a big list maker. Bless everyone's heart. I had so many lists, but I sat there with this cart and I would be filling up a cart and Jordan's mom would be running the cart to Jordan at the checkout line. Jordan would take it there and fill up the horse trailer. And we did about seven or eight of these carts. And then we kind of looked at each other at the end and we're like, that's it. And, you know, a couple thousands of dollars later, but, um, I was pretty impressed based on what we did. We didn't run out of the things that we needed from down South. Everyone was very well fed and I got to go guide the archery sheep hunt, uh, which was the second hunt of the year. And then I ended up doing two horseback hunts back to back for moose in September and then in between all the other time that I, we really don't have when you're up there, um, I was cooking. 
and not burning things except for toast. So <laughs> I'm just going to preface this, you know, there's all these Traegers and these green eggs and all these other things out there that make cooking look very easy. And you're like, oh, I'm going to smoke cheese. I'm going to smoke a pie. Barbecues and bread do not go well. We were sitting there having lunch and literally there was flames pouring out of this barbecue right close to the house. Um, so we mitigated that and they kept it in the freezer as a, as a token of remembering until the very last hunt and when I took it upon myself to uh, feed it to the birds. So, but yeah. So, so. I, I see that every, every summer here in Prince, you see the outfitters and their wranglers and their handlers coming through with the oh. carts. I'm like, you're going North. I can tell. And you just see somebody in a panic. They got a big list and you're going, uh, that was me. Just nut. <laughs> I literally, you're like, I'm walking around with a list. You feel like a conductor of an orchestra. And I was like, but it's an orchestra that you've never really led the conduction on. So it's, but you know what? Um, fake it till you make it and we made it so but yeah we were the mass migration between there prince george we met up with um, some of the guys going into the bessa and this year the, the crazy part was with covid canned goods were really hard to find so if you didn't pre-order them like peas and vegetables and like all the different fruits that was it, like it was something that really stood out to me this year is that people have definitely stocked up or the production side has been down elsewhere because I, like jams, all the things that I remember being in the kitchen at the diff camps I've been to, there were certain things that I just, I kind of zeroed in on and I'd buy enough for, you know, a couple hunts at a time and the hunt changes. But there were some ingredients that to me were, were no brainers being on the shelves between Prince George, Fort St. John, you know, and a Whitehorse. And there just wasn't anything. So... I learned that one. If there's going to be case lot, you know, buy it in the winter and stock it up in the horse trailer. That's a crazy world. And so, but the problem, so you did a good job this year. The problem is, is now, you know, you're coming back next year as camp chef, right? (laughs) I, I might have to negotiate like a sanity guiding trip, like every other hunt or, you know, every third at least. But I, that's, but that's a part though, too, is that you can't, you know, it's, that's the hardest part I'm finding. You know, I, there's a couple other women that, you know, they're slowing down um, as guides or they're having families or running areas now. And I know, like, my good friend Glenda Grote, like, when she first had her son, you know, it was like, you, you identify yourself as this person who, that's, that's who you are, it's part of your persona, you go to the mountains, you guide, and now all of a sudden, you know, she's a mom, and she didn't go guiding. And so, yeah, that's... You know, that's into the future, but like there's certain things that I'm noticing that if I want to be a mom and I want to be able to, you know, have a family, I still want to raise my own family, but I'm just going to have to like negotiate. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to need a timeout and I'm going to go guide a sheep hunt or I might take off for the first part of moose season um, and just get my fix so that that way, you know, you can still show up in other parts of your life. But yeah, it's a real thing. Guys, guys can go guiding and it's no easier for them, I'm sure, because they got families at home, but... Those are things as you get older on your radar that you're like, oh, career guiding nine months of the year, gone living out of a storage locker. It was a good time, but probably not sustainable. It it definitely does change though. And you think about it, like for a guy, he doesn't have to worry about this little, little kid in tow, right? Like, um, you know, like whatever, like, but if you're a new mom, Mm -hmm. that's kid is going to be attached to you for one guiding season almost guaranteed right so it yeah. it definitely changes things but i guess it's like any other job right you just make concessions you take your maternity leave or whatever the case may be right so 
Yeah, well, maternity leave might be like, here's a bottle, I'm going to go run up the hill. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, but you know what the cool part is, though? Actually, to throw it in, when I was a kid at Scoop Lake, there was a gal there. Um, her name was Deb Wild, and she, you know, she could run a chainsaw better than most of the guys. She was there shoeing horses. Well, her little son had come with her to the mountains. Well, her little son is now old enough to guide, and who was it who drove past our base camp? And I hadn't seen this gal in probably 15 years. And I get out and I go over and introduce myself, and I was like... Well, how the heck are you? Well, long story short, you know, she's out there with her son there doing a pack trip, mother-daughter deal, mother-son deal, sorry, got it carried away here, and he actually came and guided for us this year. So it was really cool to get, you know, to be able to see people from your past and see them raise their families and then now, you know, have a part of their family working for you, which was really cool. And he did an awesome job. It was his first guiding experience and he had a riot. They worked really well, great with the crew. Very so that's cool. kind of the cool part. Yeah. That is that is super cool. But that means also, Rachel, that you're getting older. Just just saying. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> oh, shots we fired. Are. Ooh, shots fired. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's uh so on that note, uh, and you talked about, you know, no longer living nine months out of a suitcase or whatever, a, a storage locker. What's what's on the horizon? So you know we are seeing some hunting concessions come up and change hands mm-hmm. and kind of the new generation, but we still see the Darwin and Wendy's of the world out there, like you know doing a great job. You know uh, Ron and Brenda, like you know it's it's incredible that the legacy they've created. But mm-hmm. is is there an opportunity? Are you looking? Is that something you want to do? Do you want to have your own your own place? What does it look like for you? Uh, right now, I think we're focusing on. Um, kind of the five-year goal you know right now buying areas um with how COVID is is they're they're astronomical so you know um i think down the road that's what a person would really like to do it's you know it's not being the boy on the farm but at the same time you know with how expensive these things are right now finding the right opportunity and and the scary part is with legislation right now you know bc with the grizzly bear going away you know with with some of the uh, changeover of the stewards of the land, it's, I think, maintaining the goal, yes. Um, right now, I think in this next year, we're going to focus on, you know, how can I use the relationships that I've been working on the last 10 years to help keep telling the story and be able to kind of take a step back and, and dive into everything that has helped made me who I am. You know, it was really cool this year getting to see my partner build a crew and some of the guys that had helped and I've met over the years came and worked for him. And now getting to see them develop into guides, I think focusing on the short term right now, um, that would be kind of harboring what we did this past year and and moving forward. And of course, in the long term, who who doesn't want to own their own area? Um, that would be, that would be the legacy I think that we would want to continue. Um, Jordan and I both, I mean, we've both got to work for outfitters that, you know, they're old school. You know, you, you had to be a hand. You had to know how to shoe horses. You had to know how to pack a string, you know. You had to be able to cook. You had to be able to show the hunters a good time. And, and there's still that romanticism there um, that I think we want to continue because it's something that we both believe in. So, but, you know, we're also don't put the cart before the horse, but I think it was really cool. I'd never gone to the mountains with, you know, a partner and 
especially we, I mean, we've only been together a year, I guess, almost six months or something. I don't know. It feels like forever, but <laughs> it was really neat to go together, learn about each other and, and work as a team. And I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, when owning one of these areas, like you say, you named a lot of couples and at the end of the day, it's like ranching, it's like farming, it's like any old diehard, you have to have a good teammate. You have to have someone who's just as passionate or if not as passionate as you. Because there are days where everything is going wrong up there. And you can't just run the Canadian Tire to find parts to fix it. Like you got to rely on each other. You got to be able to, if a crew go- member goes down or you have people quit or whatever ends up happening, someone's got to jump in and fill that role. So it was really neat for a new relationship to kind of get to see each other not necessarily stretch to our ends max but to have to take on a multitude of different roles and do so with such grace that no one knows how stressed you actually are or you know all the things that are happening behind the scenes to get to run an area that not only has aircraft it has horses it has argos it has driving back and forth it has northern logistics groceries and I think that was like the coolest, funnest part. Yeah, I got to stand in the kitchen and cook for a bunch of it, but getting to get out and do the other parts of like the puppeteer and get to see your partner do that, that was really, that was fun. I, that was the part that's like the next chapter. If you don't get to be a guide full time, but you get to be a part of that, I think that was, that's like that next chapter in, in the story. Well, it's a great progression too from now it's more of a managerial position and now like, so that does lead you into that, you know, owning your own outfit yeah. piece too, right? So Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So I don't know, as long as we can keep fighting the good fight, I'd, I'm very blessed to work with Sig Sauer and uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but with COVID, we haven't been able to get a bunch of the handguns up north and now with our government um, putting the freeze on it, um, I've been battling trying to get pistols because it's one of the things that I think we need to start telling the story on, you know, here in BC and across the Western provinces and territories is standing up because it was crazy how fast they were able to take away something so simple mm-hmm. and, and blame, you know, the mismanagement of, of firearm use. So, you know, in the off season, I think you're probably going to see me get a little bit more political, um, and using, the companies that have stood behind me to have a better outreach to tell the Western story of, of how we actually use these and why they shouldn't be taken away and stand up for our freedoms a bit more. Um, that Those are conversations that are happening right now, but obviously we just got home from being gone for three months, shipped calves, getting firewood, chopping ice, and racing back and forth trying to find cell phone service when you live in the boonies. So there's a few things that are kind of coming together that I had started earlier this year before I got handed lemons, but I think the lemonade that I'm making is going to be strong enough that it's going to be exciting to see where it goes. Well, let's talk more on that and, and like hats off to you. Cause you know, it's the same old crap, Rachel, and you know better than I do. The grizzly bear went away and so many people said, well, I don't hunt grizzly bears, so I don't care. Um, handguns went away. I don't have a handgun. I don't care. So, but it's just like the slippery slope, right? You know, it's just mm-hmm. one thing. Anyway, I don't need to go off on a tangent, but let's keep that dialogue going and keep, you know, if we can use this platform to keep people's, you know, awareness around these issues, because yeah, maybe they don't, hunt, maybe you don't hunt grizzly bears. Maybe you don't have a handgun, but mm-hmm. it just goes to show you that they just chip away just one piece at a time. 
Oh, exactly. And I think that's where using platforms like what you guys have created, um, especially for people that are local to British Columbia um, and with the reach that you have beyond. I remember sitting at a conference earlier this year and, you know, you, you, there was individuals talking about, um, you know, helping other people because they were unable to harvest grizzly bears anymore. And it's like, well, the only reason we're unable to harvest grizzly bears is because obviously X, Y and Z. But when I looked around the room at the outfitters that were sitting at this conference, you know that was a huge revenue loss when paying for their areas, when helping with their moose quota, with their calf, you know, survival rate. And I think the hardest part is that, you know, socialism is even leaking in on a greater scale to our wildlife management. And I think that's the part that's the scariest for me is that, you know, when you talk about the outfitters that have been here for 30 and 40 years, you know, and, and the people that they had grown up with and what changes they've seen without becoming, you know, someone who stands on a soapbox, it's like, how do we, how do we communicate this narrative that's not only a narrative anymore, but it's real. They are taking these things away. So, you know, as a cohort or a community, we need to start getting a little bit more vocal. But I'll tell you what, this is where the censorship is scary. If I post anything about hunting, if I post anything about pistols, handguns, if I tag anything on my social media, you know, when you look at your viewers on the back end of like your Instagram story, say, I will go from thousands of views to a couple hundred. So tell me they aren't censoring it. And there's been videos and stuff in the past, especially politically this spring, you know, we were talking about the anti-vax mandate. We were talking about the anti-mask. Um, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're able to control these platforms where we're communicating. So it's like, how do we counter that? And that's, you know, I think that's going to be the next big piece of the puzzle is how do we keep communicating when they start pulling away our avenues? Are we going to have to go old school? Are we going to have to hold seminars? Are we going to have to go door to door? You know, and I think that's the part that as we gear up to stand up for, especially, you know, our freedoms in what they are, that's where we're going to have to maybe go to a little bit more of guerrilla warfare, <laughs> for lack <laughs> we, of a we, better word. Yeah, we saw it uh, with our Act Now camp campaign. With really? the, with the, some of the posts and videos we did, we'd watch our engagement go from thousands to dozens if we were lucky. And it was like, they're shadow banning, but yeah. whole other conversation we have there. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, mm. let's, let's schedule another one really soon. Like I, you know, in the next couple of months, maybe post sheep week. And, uh, yep. cause there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk about here and all stuff you were just hitting on. I'm like, oh my goodness, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want all those things you just talked about. So, uh, but you know, our, we usually go an hour and we're over. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come back and we'll hit on those things and, and all, and hopefully by then you'll have some more on, on the handgun stuff mm -hmm. and we can talk more about that and, and how we can get more proactive and, and just keep everyone engaged. Like we're just, we're in this all together. Right. And we just have to keep that in mind that we're all fighting the, for the same things for the most part, the big picture stuff, the 90%. So let's just mm -hmm. keep fighting on that 90%. So anyway, don't need to tell you that, but that's, um, yeah, Awesome, uh, awesome comments. So to wrap up, what's the plan? You going to Sheep Week? What's happening in the next six months for you? Oh, we're going to make it through winter. Hopefully hell doesn't freeze over. I'm sure you guys are in the same bet. Um, but as far as I know, it's soon as we get everything rolling here, it's going to be Dallas Safari Club, Sheep Week, 
this year, um, I'm honored to work with Safari Club International, and we're going to be in Nashville, Tennessee this year, which is going to be exciting. And the theme is women go hunting. So there's been kind of some cool happenings on the back end for kind of the international stage. And then I actually, I'm going all the way to Raleigh, North Carolina in March, right at the start of calving season. So hopefully I'm not marred from coming home. But uh, to the first trade show that Eva Shockey and I ever booked, and actually where she met her husband at the Dixie Deer Classic. So I'm dragging Jordan all the way out to uh, hear what a deer call and a turkey, um, turkey plate is. But I'm going to be holding a presentation out there. Um, I believe that is the first weekend in March. So, and then cool. we're rolling into calving season. So lots of cabin time in the next little bit and kind of putting some pen to paper and hopefully having a few things kind of line up that have been on the back burner and kind of burning a hole in my pocket. So I'm excited. It'll be exciting. Cool. So for our listeners, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but where do they want to go to check your out? Insta, what's the best place to check out Rachel? Uh, ba- yeah, so I would just keep it with the Instagram, at Rachel Attila. Um, all of the developments that are going to be happening with the website and everything are going to be starting and kicked off through that platform, and we'll be going from there. So one awesome. step at a time. Thank you guys very much. I really enjoy the conversation and... I'm excited that there's lots of us that are on the same playing field. So hopefully we can keep this momentum going. Awesome. We appreciate it. Thank you, Rachel, for all you do for our hunting community, for women in hunting, for um, just, you know, and, and all these things that you're working on too. I'm really excited. And like I said, I, I there's just a whole new podcast with talking about these, these new, new ideas that you're working on and um, having these tough conversations that we, you know, we need everyone in our space to get on board with. So thank you for your time and for all you do. Oh, thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Very honored.